KMTT. This is Kafchet Tammuz Monday. This is the last week in this summer semester for KMTT. In 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 Chodesh Av, beginning next week, we will be taking a much necessary vacation. We'll be back though in Chodesh Elul in one month time, because this is the last week. There'll be some changes in the schedule. Today's shiur will not be given by a Raftavori. Raftavori is ready in uh, spending some time in America, and therefore his KMTT vacation is starting a one week early. So today's shiur will be another installment in the series of Rav Moshe Tarragon on the essentials of Avodat Hashem. After the shiur, I'll be back as usual with the Midrash Hayomi, the daily Midrash. We are grateful to HaKadosh Baruch Hu that over the past 60 years, HaKadosh Baruch Hu has turned the tables of history in the favor of the Jewish people and has launched the beginning of the redemptive process which Amir Hashem will culminate in the complete return of the Jewish people to Eretz Yisrael, building the third base Hamikdash, celebrating the arrival of Mashiach Tzidkenu and ushering in the long-awaited-for Messianic era in which the entire world will be filled with the knowledge of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We are thrilled that this process has been launched and we are thrilled that we have the privilege, perhaps through no merit of our own, that we have the privilege to participate in the final chapters of history and to contribute alongside of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to the redemptive process. And yet, many of us are left with a very, very awkward or uncomfortable feeling when we consider that this process has been and is spearheaded by Jews who have turned their backs on much of the traditions and heritages of Har Sinai. People who unfortunately are no longer Shamatara or Mitzvahs, no longer sensitive to the tradition of Tarash Shebechsav and to the rabbinic authority of Tarash Shebalpeh, perhaps through no fault of their own, perhaps they were not exposed educationally, developmentally, to the beauty of Tarash Mitzvahs, but still it haunts us that these are our partners and these are the agents which HaKadosh Baruch Hu dispatched to launch our redemptive process. Many Orthodox Jews reject the entire enterprise of Eretz Yisrael, of returning to this land from a political standpoint, in part because the leadership of this process is so unfamiliar. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu were to launch a process of redemption, many people reason, then certainly he would choose Orthodox Jews, Gedolei Atara, Gedolei Hadar, to lead the process. Inasmuch as the process has been guided by secular Jews, by secular Zionists, many feel incapable of responding and of embracing the process. To us who we do embrace and celebrate HaKadosh Baruch Hu's process, this becomes a very, very haunting question, and a question which must haunt us. We are truly sensitive and loyal, not just to the redemptive process, but to the 2,000 years of halacha, of rabbinic tradition, and of course, the 3,000 years since Har Sinai, how could we become partners in a process of gula with individuals who have lost their commitment and their loyalty to these values? The truth is, the redemptive process by nature is difficult to rationalize to the human mind. There are precedents in Jewish history, moments in which HaKadosh Baruch Hu launched redemption in very, very unfamiliar manner through unlikely heroes in unpredictable fashion simply because conditions did not allow, so to speak, a more classic redemption to evolve. 
The first example, the first moment in Jewish history in which redemption was brokered by unlikely agents, is recorded in Yechezkel Parakhaf. Yechezkel Parakhaf describes the original Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, but it describes it in very, very different terms than the images and scenarios we're accustomed to. In our mind, certainly the way the Torah describes Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt was unilateral. Kodesh Baruch Hu swept down into history for the first time, descending into the cesspool of Mitzrayim, to redeem his beloved nation, Mashcheni Acharecha Narutza, Heviani Amelech Adarav, to sweep us off our feet into the desert of our faith, Chesed Nurayach Avas Klulosayach Lechtech Acharei Bamidbar Be'eretz Lo We marched with the aura of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, B'Tseis Yisrael Minusayim Beis Yaakov Mi'amloes Haisayudah Mountains were pulverized in our midst, in our wake, the entire process was driven solely by a Baruch Hu. The haste, the lack of uh, poise or tempo, doesn't merely describe the fear and terror of the Egyptians, but also the almost lack of any, any role, any com- contribution on the part of Am Yisrael. HaKadosh Baruch Hu descended into Mitzrayim and drew us out of the pagan, pagan uh, failure of Egypt. But Yechezkel Parachaf describes an offer of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to Am Yisrael. Hashem offered Am Yisrael a different type of redemption. A redemption, a gula, in which the people would take the first step, would show some initiative, some courage. Yechezkel Parachaf describes HaKadosh Baruch Hu recalling the day in which he initiated the exodus, the departure from Egypt, and I suggested to the people, Ish she could say enough hashlichu uvegilulei mitzrayim al titamo ani Hashem alokechem. Take that first step, divest some of the accumulated culture of Egypt, discard the pagan worship, the pagan worship which had become so familiar and so adored even by Jews, as Chazal darshan based on the pasuk in Bo Mishchu ukechulachem tzalm the mishpachosechem the pasuk which describes selecting the carbon pesach through the term Mishchu sort of assertive, almost even violent or physical selection. Mechilta, Darshans, and Mechilta interprets, Mishchu Yedechem Withdraw from Avodazara, and as part of this display of defiance and of rejection of Avodazara, take the very idols which Egyptians worshipped, which perhaps Jews had worshipped or had adored as well, and sacrifice it as a carbon. Sacrifice it. Slaughter it. So Kodesh Baruch Hu desired, at least, that the redemption be driven not just by divine interest, but by human hand. And the Parak in Yechezkel describes our recalcitrance. Vayamruvi, they rebelled against me, Hashem says, sadly. Eli, they refused to listen to my voice, to heed my request. Ish eshikutsei name lo hishlichu. They refused to divest the pagans of Egypt. They still adhered, sustained this idolatrous lifestyle. They were, uneven, they were unable even to take that first minor or minimal step to contribute to their own redemption, to their own rescue. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu records in Yechezkel, Perachaf Yechezkel records HaKadosh Baruch Hu's intent 
Vaomar Lishpocha Masia Lehem Lachalos Api Bohem Besoch Eris Mitzrayim. Hashem says, I intended to annihilate them, I intended to destroy them. Every year in Pesach evening, as the Seder winds to a close, we all recite Shvoch Hamaschael Hagayim Asher Layidaucha, that Hashem should pour his wrath upon the iniquitous nations. The source of that statement is Yechezkel Parachaf. Hashem originally hurled this threat and this terminology at the Jewish people, the obstinate people who had refused to incite their own redemption. Hashem originally had intended to destroy us through this language. Pesach night, we try to redirect that language in Hashem's intent to the iniquitous and evil nations of the world. So Hashem had intended to destroy Am Yisrael. Am Yisrael, perhaps, uh, the Jewish experience would have been a short-lived one. Why didn't he? So Pasuk Test describes the reason HaKadosh Baruch Hu redeemed even those who in many ways were undeserving of redemption. Va'as laman shimi levilti hachel I redeemed the people for my name, for the glory and sanctity of my name. HaKadosh Baruch Hu had already been associated with this people, with this nation. Hundreds of years had been invested in trying to propagate and disseminate a greater knowledge of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov lived heroic, almost sacrificial lifestyles in order to build an awareness of this monotheistic, transcendent, and invisible God. Avraham had succeeded in many, many regions, north with his family, in modern-day Iraq and Syria, Lavan and Padan Aram. He had succeeded with some of the locals, Avimelech, B'nai Ches, the people of Shechem in some ways. But yet Egypt had been unmoved and unstirred by Avraham's great message. And Amisul's descent into Egypt, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu's confrontation with Paro, a confrontation which begins with Paro's absolute denial, refusal to accept Hashem, Mi Hashem, who is this God that you speak of? Finally, through the plagues, the ten plagues, the ten makos, Pyro had been brought to his heels, and not just Pyro, but an entire culture, and through the Egyptian culture, the cradle of ancient civilization, an entire world was now primed to appreciate this message. Hashem HaSadik, Pyro says, during Makas Becharos, Vani Vamihar Shaim. So much had been wagered, so much had been invested in order to build an awareness of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and His presence and His religion that we stood for. And annihilating the Jewish people at this point would have constituted a Chilil Hashem that was intolerable. All of that process would have been reversed, would have been forfeited. So Hashem redeemed us, even though we may not have deserved redemption, at least according to the portrait in Yechezkel Perachaf, in order to preserve the sanctity of His name. As He defends the Jewish people after the terrible Chareigel, actually invokes this concern, that if you destroy the Jewish people, then Egypt, and along with Egypt, the entire world audience will claim that you lack the power, the interest to sustain your nation, your beloved people. Sixty years ago, sixty-five years ago, the Jewish people suffered the greatest Chil Hashem in 2,000 years, since the destruction of the Chorban. The methodological, methodical, and systematic annihilation of an entire race, 
Jewish blood was being spilled in the streets of Europe mercilessly. We were being murdered, and our murders were slaughtering us with impunity. Certainly throughout the last 2,000 years, since Chorm Mesamekdash, we've suffered in many countries and in many eras. But all the pogroms and all the inquisitions and all the expulsions and suffering and blood libels cannot even begin to measure up to the nightmare which our people experienced 60 years ago in the dark streets of Europe. And it wasn't just the Jewish people who were under assault during those terrible years, but it was our God and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, whom we are affiliated with, who HaKadosh Baruch Hu has selected us, and when we suffer, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence in this world suffers and regresses. And if Jewish blood was being spilt so freely, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence diminished in our world. And Achil Hashem, the type of which hadn't occurred in 2,000 years, was perpetrated. And a Kiddush Hashem of equal magnitude had to be created in order to restore the sanctity and the regality of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name. Just as HaKadosh Baruch Hu redeemed us in Mitzrayim, Va'as Laman Shemi Levilti Hachel Goyim HaKadosh Baruch Hu redeemed us on behalf of His name. Similarly, He redeemed us 60 years ago. He began to redeem us. First and foremost, in order to restore the sanctity of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name, the presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, presence of Avinu Malkeinu, Shabbat Shamayim. I remember a very, very uh, moving moment which I thought of this parak in Yechezkel. About three years ago, the Israeli Air Force was invited to participate in war games in the Polish city of Radan. And the squadron leader was going to participate with his team of fighter jets, conditioned Israeli participation in these war games upon being granted a flyover of Auschwitz. He would not fly in Radan unless he first flew in Auschwitz. And if, if, at first, the Polish parliament was very resistant. Auschwitz is a cultural or historical landmark, and armaments of war shouldn't be introduced. But this squadron leader was adamant. And he wasn't even an Ashkenazi, he was a Sephardic Jew, whose family and whose people hadn't really been vulnerable or exposed to the horrors of the Holocaust, but he refused to fly in Poland unless he was granted a symbolic flyover the, trail tra- the train tracks of horror that had witnessed such dehumanization and murder in Auschwitz. And finally, the Polish parliament acceded, and as he pulled his team of fighter jets into, uh, he pulled them into uh, formation to fly, there was an emissary of Jewish leaders and representatives on those tracks of Auschwitz, and he flew a few hundred feet over those tracks as Hatikva was sung, and as he pulled into formation, he announced over the loudspeaker, Gicha achat, Gicha is a sortie, a flyover, Gicha achat avor Am Yisrael, Gicha achat avor Korbanot HaShoah, one flyover for the Jewish people, one flyover for the victims of the Holocaust who hadn't even experienced any form of respectable burial. And how many months did we plead with Eisenhower and with Churchill, with Roosevelt, for that one flyover, for that one mission which would bomb the train tracks, the skies of Europe had been controlled 
exclusively by Allied forces. The German Air Force was non-existent, had been reduced to rubble. And one single bomb in the spring of 1944 on the train tracks of Auschwitz may have saved close to 750,000 Hungarian Jews from exportation and ultimately execution. And the Jewish people and Jewish blood wasn't even worth one flyover 60 years ago. And now Baruch Hashem were a military and economic and cultural superpower. And Baruch Hashem, as he pulled his team of jets into formation, he had the historical sensitivity to recognize the import and the connotation of this flyover. And I felt as if I was witnessing the cycle of Yechezkel being fulfilled. Sixty years ago, the Chilul Hashem was perpetrated in Baruch Hashem, the start of the restoration of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name to the people of Israel, to the Jewish people. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu redeemed us 3,000 years ago, even though we may not have deserved it, even though we were still mired in paganism and idolatry, He began to redeem us 60 years ago for similar reasons. The second snapshot of unlikely or uh, illogical redemption on behalf of unfamiliar and unlikely heroes stems from a very interesting passage in Malachim Bey's Parak Yudalit. During the 15th year of Amatzia's reign, Amatzia ruled in the southern kingdom of Judah, of Yehuda, Malach Yeravim ben Yawash, Melech Yisrael b'Shamron, Arba'im v'Achashenah. The land of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern and southern kingdom. So Amatzia ruled in the southern kingdom, and Yeravim ben Yawash, not Yeravim ben Nevat, but Yeravim ben Yawash ruled in the northern kingdom, the people of Israel. But like his namesake, Yeravim ben Yawash was a wicked king. Vayas hara b'nei Hashem, lo sar mikal chatos Yeravim ben Nevat ashehechti es Yisrael. Yeravim ben Yawash was equal in his, uh, in his notoriety, in his corruption, in his crime, to Yeravim ben Nevat. He sustained the idolatry, the murder of Yeravim ben Nevat, of murdering people, he was just as, equal, just as evil. Yeravim's equal. Yeravim ben Nevat's equal. Yeravim ben Yawash. What occurred during his reign? Pasuk Chafei, Perak Yudal and Malachim Beis. Hu eishivis givul Yisrael milavo chamas yam harava he led the Jewish people to unparalleled territorial expansion. Why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu choose such a wicked and terrible king to be the great hero of the Jewish experience and of the wars which were fought? Hashem witnessed the plight of the Jewish people was deplorable. V'yefes Atsur, V'yefes Azuv. No one would help, no allies. The borders were indefensible. The allies were non-existent. The Jewish experience was too vulnerable to be sustained under current conditions and HaKadosh Baruch Hu had to alter the reality. Hashem, the parak ends, Hashem could not fathom extinguishing the Jewish experience. So he saved them through Yeravam ben Yawash. One of the most evil Jewish kings was the hero of this period of Malachim Beis. Who can read these psukim without thinking of the days and weeks prior to the Six-Day War? 35 years of hindsight, 38 years, 39 years of hindsight, cast this war as a war in which we re- re- secured the biblical homeland, Yehuda, 
Shamron, Aza, unfortunately were no longer able to live in Aza. But prime, and of course, liberating the old city, Yeratikav Yushalayim, regaining the Kotel Hamaravi. But that's not what the war was primarily about. The generals hadn't even war planned for these scenarios. The Israeli army wasn't even prepared for even the very remote possibility that we would recover Yudan Shamron. They would liberate the Eratika and the Kotel Hamaravi. Those weren't even on people's minds. It was a war of survival. Nasser, the Egyptian president, evicted the UN from the Suez Canal and lodged his very, very infamous threat to toss the Jews into the sea and to continue Hitler's work. Nineteen years earlier, the state had been formed, and the state was a mere fledgling of a state, vulnerable and fragile. And people feared a Holocaust, or the conclusion of the Holocaust. Men and uh, women and children were sent overseas. Very famous, sad joke, which was uh, proliferating in the days and weeks before the Six Day War. The last one out of the country, the last one out of Ben Gurion, the airport should close the lights, should shut the lights to the country. People feared that the Jewish state would not would no longer exist. Across the entire country, in all sorts of schools, Zionist schools, Haredi schools, children came to yeshiva and said to Hillel, there were no classes, there were no lessons, there were no learning. People said to Hillel and went home, just like Hashem Baruch should save us. And there were no allies, no one interested in participating in, in rescuing the Jewish people. Now Baruch Hu saved us, and didn't just save us, but rejuvenated our experience by awarding us Yudan Shamron, Yeratika, the Kotel HaMaravi. And if HaKadosh Baruch Hu can redeem us through the agency of Yeravim ben Yawash, who is a paganist, he certainly can redeem us through the secular Zionists, our prime ministers, our generals, our ideological leaders, who helped return this country, this people, to our country, and during the five or six ensuing wars helped defend this country and achieve defensible, sturdy borders. This is the second snapshot from Jewish history, the second moment in time in which the Jewish people were redeemed through an unlikely agent. If in Mitzrayim we were redeemed, though undeservedly, in order to prevent the Chilol Hashem, an intolerable Chilol Hashem, during the Six-Day War we were redeemed in order to expand our borders to create a more sustainable and defensible situation. The third snapshot comes from the very, very famous miracle of Hanukkah. The miracle of Hanukkah, of course, was spearheaded by the Hashemunayim. And in our minds and imagination, much of it, much of its supernatural miracles revolve around the events of the Pach Hashemun, of the one keg of pure oil, which was used to light the menorah for eight days. However, when the Rambam describes the nace of Hanukkah, at least in his initial comments, he makes no mention of the oil. The Rambam focuses, at least in the beginning of Hilchas Hanukkah, Paragimah, Halach Aleph, solely on the military response and the military victory. Bebayasheni during the Second Temple, Kishemalchu Yavan during the period of the Assyrian Greeks, Gazru Gezeres al Yisrael, they legislated and decreed against the Jews, Ubatlu Datam, they attacked our religion. Very often people take the simplistic generalization that Purim was a mortal danger and Hanukkah was some sterile um, ideological or theological debate with a different culture. There were ideological and theological elements to the, um, to the encounter of Hanukkah, but it was a mortal threat similar to Purim. The Rambam describes, Upashtu yadam bimamonam 
They stole our money, they raped our daughters. They persecuted us physically, not just ideologically. Until had mercy and pity. He saved us. And the Hashmonayim were the heroes who led this rebellion and ultimately brokered our redemption through HaKadosh Baruch Hu's assistance. And the Hashmonayim appointed a king. Jewish sovereignty was restored for 200 years until the second or the destruction of the second Beis HaMikdash. The Hashmonayim were very interesting leaders. They were certainly dedicated martyrs willing to sacrifice life and limb on behalf of this redemption and rebellion against the Assyrian rule. But there's no question that their legacy is pockmarked by one very, very grievous error. The Gemara in Kiddushin tells us that if a person approaches Beisdin and announces that he stems from Hashmonai dynasty, then we assume he's a slave, and therefore he can't marry a Jew, because all the pedigreed members of the Hashmonayim were annihilated within a few generations. The only members of the Hashmonai house to remain alive were slaves, so this person inevitably must be a slave and has to be dealt with accordingly. Why were they punished so severely? Why were they annihilated? So the Ramban informs us in Parshas Vayichi because of one very, very egregious error. Yaakov states when he delivers his brachos to his various children, The scepter, the throne, should be secured by the tribe of Yehuda. Yaakov envisions a very, very clear separation between church and state, if you will. The tribe of Levi, Shevet Levi, and the Konim are empowered to supervise the ritual ceremonies in the Beis HaMikdash to assist us in approaching HaKadosh Baruch Hu, they are more or less a clergy whose sole focus is to supervise and to enable religious experience. But the Shevet of Yehuda, the tribe of Yehuda, they are involved in the political realm, supervising the day-to-day affairs of a country, the social, civic, military, political, economic needs of an entire people. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu this is what Yaakov uh, suggests is not interested in having a convergence of church and state. The Hashmonaim violated Yaakov's interest. The Hashmonaim were Kohanim. And they essentially usurped the throne from Shevet Yehuda. And because of this usurpation, the Ramban claims, they were severely punished by quick annihilation. So certainly, the Hashmonaim, despite their heroism, are not the classic leadership of Mordechai and Esther or Moshe and Aaron, but they're a stained leadership. Many Tzaduki, not many, but certainly one very, very um, well-known Tzaduki, John Hirkinus, stemmed from Hashmonai origin. And in part, this flawed leadership, this flawed record, in part, accounts for the very, very minimal treatment which the Nase of Hanukkah receives through Chazal. Of course, there's no mention of the Nase of Hanukkah in Tanakh, but that's because the Nase occurred after the canonization of Tanakh had concluded. But Chazal dedicate entire tractates, entire Mesechdals to Yom Kippur, to Purim, to Pesach. Purim is one day, two days, and yet it merits an entire Mesechda of 30 daf. And Hanukkah is eight days, with comparable halachos, and yet it only merits some offhanded reference in the Gemara and Shabbos, when the Gemara is discussing in the second parak the material to light candles on Shabbos, 
So it uh, veers off into some tangent and quickly, quickly, very succinctly describes the laws of Hanukkah. What to light with? There isn't even a mention of Hanukkah in the Mishnayos. Hanukkah is mentioned in the Mishnah and Bikurim. It's the final moment to deliver Bikurim, according to Chazal. It's also mentioned a very interesting Mishnah in the end of the sixth parakel of Akama. Certain laws of Nezek are altered by the recognition that store owners may place fire in harm's way during the nace of Hanukkah when they light their menorah. But certainly the holiday of Hanukkah isn't mentioned in the Mishnah at all. In the part of Chazal, we're acknowledging the flawed record of Hanukkah, flawed because of its leadership. Not just was the leadership flawed, but this restoration of sovereignty is very fleeting, is very, very inferior. These 200 years are one of the saddest moments in Jewish history. Internecine struggle. The office of the Kohen Gadol was severely compromised by the Tztukim. Great, great ideological debates and great tension between the Tztukim and the Prushim. We live 200 years under all sorts of foreign sovereigns. And 200 years after the Nase of Hanukkah, the Romans marched into Yushalayim and burnt it through the ground and any memory of Hanukkah and the restoration of Malchus Yisrael was completely erased. Hanukkah has absolutely no long-term historical impact. It's a historical hiccup. It has tremendous ideological impact. It launched the period of the Hashemun, of the Tarsh Peh, the great flowering of Talmud Bavli, Talmud Yishalmi, but it has no long-term historical impact. So what are we suffering? What are we celebrating? Flawed leadership? some sort of parenthetical moment in Jewish history. Yet we celebrate the restoration of Jewish sovereignty. Chazim Malchus saw the Rambam writes, no matter how ephemeral it was, no matter how flawed the leadership was, the very fact that Jews can determine their own fate, settle their own land, dictate their own terms, express their own culture, their own society, that's reason, according to the Rambam, to say Hallel for nine days, even without mentioning the miracle of the Pach Hashemin. Now certainly no one intends, I certainly don't intend to compare the Hashmonayim, Chalila Vachas, the secular Zionists, the Hashmonayim, or Mosur Nefesh, Akidah Hashem, Shamrit Torah Mitzvos, Hanimim V'chayim, of Mosam L'Nefradu, Tzadiki Olam. But the sense you have is that Jewish sovereignty and the restoration of Jewish sovereignty merits celebration, merits Hallel, even if that sovereignty is flawed, is passing, and even if that sovereignty is launched by leadership, which doesn't exactly evoke images and reminiscence of Moshe, Aaron, Shmuel Bechon, and Moshe Aaron Bechon of Shmuel Bekari Shmuel. These are three different models of Gulas Yisrael throughout Jewish history. Whether Gula from Mitzrayim in order to avert a Chilal Hashem, the Gula during the first base Hamikdash in order to sustain a defensible nation or the Geula of Hanukkah in order to restore Malchus Yisrael three moments in history in which HaKadosh Baruch Hu redeemed us in an unlikely fashion to unpredictable heroes for different reasons but somehow we feel that all those reasons have resurfaced over the last 60 years the restoration of the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the territorial expansion to sustain the Jewish experience and of course, the great return of Jewish sovereignty and Jewish pride, which we've all witnessed. Baruch Hashem Wazalcha, to live through this period and hopefully to contribute and appreciate Akadish Baruch's divine miracles. Merit Hashem, next year I'll elaborate further on this topic.
You've been listening to Rav Moshe Taragin, The Essentials of Avodat Hashem. For today's Midrash, uh, beginning Pashat Devarim. The opening Pasuk of Devarim is Eilah HaDevarim Asher Diber Moshe. There were many, many Midrashim. It's ten of, more than ten different Midrashim in the beginning of the Midrash Rabbah on Devarim to this Pasuk, which might be expected since the opening of a Sefer or a new section even very often elicits a lot of responses. But here in particular, the opening words uh, attracted the attention of Chazal. These are the words which Moshe spoke. Chazal remembered a pasuk, something which Moshe had said to God a long time ago, 40 years earlier, way back in the beginning of Sefer Shemot. I am not a man of words. The exact same wording, Devarim. Lo ish devarim anochi and eila had devarim, and they couldn't help noticing the change. Moshe Rabbeinu, the man who is not a man of words, and here he says these are the words which Moshe spoke, and thinking ahead, the words that Moshe spoke as the entire sefer devarim. It's a very long speech indeed. Even if you break it up into its two or three components, it's still three extremely long speeches. Moshe Rabbeinu gave one of those four or five, six, seven hour speeches which we're not familiar with in the Western world but sometimes happen in other places in the world. So how did this happen? Moshe Rabbeinu was lo ish devarim. Of course you might think that uh, it's nevuah. Moshe Rabbeinu was prophesying in God's name. I think Chazal understood that the opening pasuk means that this is not the same kind of prophecy as took place in other places in Torah where it says Vaydaber Hashem El Moshe Limor. God spoke to Moshe that he should say, and then Moshe said it over. But here there's no Vaydaber Hashem. God didn't speak to Moshe. This is really Moshe's speech. Of course it's Beruach HaKodesh. It's with divine inspiration. It becomes part of Torah. But this is genuinely Moshe Rabbeinu's own speech, and he is indeed a man of many, many eloquent and extensive words. So I want to give two statements made in the Midrash. These are two out of many but they're opposite, and therefore, I think, illustrative. The first one opens with a statement, not relating to Pasha, a general statement about Torah. God says the, the, the Torah, the language of Torah, means he who speaks Torah, he who has Torah on his tongue, the Torah cures his tongue. If you have a problem in your tongue, so put the Torah on your tongue, that'll cure your tongue. Minayin. How do you know this? Shukein chitiv, it's a pasuk, marpei lashon, eitz chayim. Ve'ein eitz chayim, ele Torah. The, the cure of the tongue is the tree of life, and the tree of life is itself Torah shenemar, eitz chayim hi lemachazikim ba. Okay, that was the opening statement of the Midrash. Then Rish Lakish said, Rish Lakish Amar, we can learn from our Pasha, Harei Moshe. Moshe Rabbeinu, before he received the Torah, before he was a man of Torah, what does it say about him? I am not a man of words. After he merited, he, he acquired Torah, his tongue was cured, and he began to speak speeches. How do we know that? So what did Ishlakish say? Moshe Rabbeinu was not a man of, t- of words, 
But when he became a man of Torah, he became a man of words. In other words, our parsha is really in distinction to the parsha and Shemot, because Moshe Rabbeinu has been cured, he's been transformed. And what transformed him? What transformed him was Torah. Statement is an amazing statement. It says that if you learn Torah, you will be able to, I don't know if you'll be able to make after-dinner speeches, but you'll be able to speak Torah. You'll be able to speak what Moshe Rabbeinu has to speak, which is itself Torah. That learning Torah and putting Torah on your tongue also involves speaking Torah to others. I think the principle being that Torah is lilmod ulamed. One learns Torah, and that's just that you should want to also teach Torah. Learning Torah creates the ability to teach Torah. Is this always true? I've known some exceptions. Indeed, I have. But Veshlaka said it's true. At least it was true for Moshe Rabbeinu. There's another Midrash. Uh, two pages later in the Midrash Rabbah makes the following statement. I'll explain to you what happened here by giving you a parable. There was a man. He was selling... Argaman cloth. In other words, it's, it's very expensive. It's cloth that's been dyed with this red dye called Argaman. It's one of the two very, very royal dyes of the ancient world. Familiar with the Tyrolean purple, which is Trelet. It's also a dye called Argaman. And, and it, it's an expensive and, and complicated process. And therefore, the cloth he's selling is, is, is a luxury. He was selling it in the streets, so he would make an announcement. Have Argaman. He, a, he was crying out, selling his wares. He tzitz melech b'shamat kolal. The king heard his voice and looked out, and, and saw what he was doing. So he called him and said to him, "What are you selling?" Amalei lo klum. The seller said to the king, I, "I'm not selling anything." He was embarrassed to say what he was selling. He's a peddler, so he lied. He said, "I'm not selling anything." Amalei, the king said to him, "Ani shamati et kolcha." I heard your voice that you were saying. And now you tell me nothing? Low clue? You're not selling anything? So he answered, He said to the king, Mavi, my master, Emet, It's true, I'm selling Argaman. But by you it's nothing. I'm boasting that I have Argaman, but you're, you're so rich and... and, and and mighty, uh, so it, it's nothing. I said loklum because by you it's nothing. By you it's loklum. Kach Moshe. This explains to us Moshe. When speaking to God, who created the mouth, the tongue, speech itself, Moshe Rabbeinu said, Lo ish Remember in that Pasha and Shemot? God had told Moshe Rabbeinu to go speak to Paro. Moshe said, I don't want to go because Lo ish I'm not a man of words. In the presence of God, Moshe Rabbeinu said, and not out of false modesty, but in truth, I can speak. I can speak your words. I can't. It's nothing. I don't have that ability. That's in God's presence. Eitzel Yisrael, but when speaking to the Jews, Moshe. I think the Midrash is stressing what I mentioned before, but here it's even stronger. That Sefer Dvarim is not Eitzel Elokim. It's speaking to the Jews from Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu never had a problem, Rabbi Tanchuma said. He was never tongue-tied. The famous statement, Lo Ish Dvarim Anochi, that Moshe Rabbeinu had said to God, wasn't because he was tongue-tied by our standards. 
said, I'm tongue-tied by your standards. I'm not worthy of speaking your message to Paro. But here Moshe Rabbeinu was really saying his message. Of course, again, it's with God, divine inspiration. It's going to become part of Torah. But Moshe Rabbeinu is speaking from his heart and not the words of God. And then Moshe Rabbeinu tells the truth. He has a lot to say. And he is indeed an ish, an ish to Pavim. So these two Medrashim say the exact opposite. The first one says Moshe Rabbeinu was in fact tongue-tied, but Torah cured him. The second one says that Moshe Rabbeinu was a great orator, worthy of uh, um, creating and and speaking the entire Sefer Devarim, which is a giant speech of Moshe Rabbeinu. Nonetheless, it's appropriate and correct for him to say, Lo ish Devarim Anochi, because in the presence of God, our skills, you're an orator, you could, you're, you're, you're a mumbler. You think that you're a great, uh, you're, you're rich, you're, you're impoverished, you have nothing. You're a great athlete, you're a cripple. In the presence of God, all of these human abilities appear in truth to be absolutely nothing, and therefore the answer is, lo klum, I am nothing. Even though when the opportunity or the need the correct circumstances are there. Moshe Rabbeinu turns out to be a gifted and talented, amazingly gifted and talented Avada. That's it for today. You've been listening to the Shir in the Essentials of Odat Hashem by Rabbi Moshe Tarragin, as well as the Daily Midrash. We're back tomorrow with another Shir of uh, Rav Tarragin. And until then, this has been KMTT. Wishing you a call to Kimitzion Titzei Torah Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim.